Hey, this is BC Wolf. You're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on DubLab. And today I'm joined by fearless original Celeste Bell, singer, writer, teacher, and daughter of light years ahead punk icon and X-ray specs frontwoman Polystyrene. Celeste recently co-directed and produced the highly acclaimed documentary about her mother's work called Polystyrene, I Am a Cliché, which she also narrates. And that's actually how and why we first connected. So Celeste, it's so wonderful to have you join us. Thank you, Beatty. Thank you for having me. And just very quickly, we talked about it um, before we started, but you're in Barcelona at, at the moment. Um, how's that for you? Yeah, it's great. Um, I've actually lived in Spain on and off since the early 2000s. Um, I'm a Spanish resident. I lived in Madrid for many years and then Barcelona. And I've sort of been back and forth between Spain and the UK for some time now. So it's really great to be here at the moment um, because with the pandemic and everything that's going on in the world, um, it's, it feels relatively normal here, as normal as you can kind of get um, anywhere that's not, you know, full-on uh, anti-lockdown like Sweden. <laughs> it's sort of some, some, there's some kind of middle ground between um, that and, and the UK at the moment. And how is your Spanish? Are you fluent? I'm pretty fluent. I mean, it's um, I spent three years in, in the UK um, right up until January. So it got a bit rusty, but I would say I'm, I have an advanced level of Spanish, yeah. Nice. Well, so we actually kind of met, and met is a is a sort of loose term, um, but we connected fairly recently um, around South by because you were doing a Q and A there about the documentary, um, and I was doing mm -hmm. something with this postcards project, and it's funny because you know your your mom. Um, and my mom actually, you know, spent quite a lot of time together. Um, I think it was between 77 and up to 81 because my mom was doing this punk documentary called Punk Rock, The Early Years, and then also this book. Um, and so for the film, I think that was that performance of identity. And there was, you know, she, in she interviewed um, your mom for that. And but it wasn't really until recently where I was chatting with her and she sort of said that actually you, you guys had come to the house, to our house just off Stephendale Road when you were a baby. I think it was 81, must have been around that time. Um, mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was actually your mum who said to to my mum to kind of move on from the punk stuff and, you know, do something different. And that was what really prompted mm -hmm. my mum to go off and become a therapist and do these all these other things. So I think, you know, there was definitely a... Um, a sort of real, you know, impact that, you know, your mum made. And it sounds like mm. she makes on so many people. Um, so I was just really, you know, fascinated to chat with you and learn just a bit more about you. And because also you're doing incredible work um, and see that kind of um, parallel between, you know, what you're doing and obviously what, what your mum pioneered, you know, so many years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating, um, the fact that, our mothers connected um, at that time, and um, and here we are now, <laughs> years later, um, in this very weird virtual communication. Which um, it's it's funny because 1981 seems so long ago, but 
so recent at the same time. But yeah, I've been I've been um, just really privileged to be able to work with my mother's legacy in a creative way. And, you know, I manage her estate and that involves a lot of sort of administrative, bureaucratic and legal work. But being able to do something creative has been, you know, something really enjoyable for me. And it's been the last five years sort of working on the book, um, the film and also an exhibition of her artwork. Um, and I guess it's allowed me to also sort of explore my own, my own creativity um, and it's it's been a really important outlet for me in that way. And we're we're gonna you know talk more about that um, later on in the show. Obviously, something you mentioned, which I think is really key, is you know you come at it from a obviously a creative artistic standpoint, but also a kind of business historical one as well. And so probably the other mm-hmm. things that you've done in your life um, really give you the skills to kind of not just see the creative potential but really handle that legacy and you know whether it's the exhibition the film or the book to really represent that in in the best ways possible yeah I mean I I you know I'm very lucky that I come from a creative family and I had lots of opportunities um to develop my my own skills let's say from an early age and the first sort of creative work I did really was um songwriting and singing and songwriting sort of very much like my my mother um you know from childhood really my mother encouraged me to do that to be musical and I think the writing side of that um you know has also evolved over the years and um you know like my mom I've not only written lyrics but also poems and and other things and then my academic studies and careers, I think, also really helped just to kind of um, give me a more academic, how can I say, um, discipline mm. to everything. So the the title of this show, Orange Juice for the Years, um, is taken from a line by neurologist Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep it really goes. Um, And that line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It is a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to know, Celeste, what does that quote mean to you? I think it's a really great quote. Um, And I love love that um, orange juice for the ear because, you know, there is something, um, you know, in terms of, the taste, our taste buds, like when we're eating, there's something similar in, let's say, our ears when we're listening and everyone has a different taste in terms of what they enjoy and what will resonate with them. But I think there are, um, we could say that there are sort of um, delicious recipes in terms of music that are, you know, popular um, for, for the vast majority you know, so you've got your pizzas and you've got your ice cream uh, that very few people can say they don't enjoy. And then you've got the more, um, you know, let's say um, difficult or challenging to appreciate sort of um, pieces that might be more akin to, I don't know, Marmite or caviar. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think you also touched on something genius, actually, which is, you know, there are sugar frequencies. There literally are frequencies in sound and music that are the frequencies that will cut through when you have, you know, you're at the gym and everything's super loud around you and they're designed to cut through and hook your ear and grab your ear, but mm. then also ultimately tie your ear out. Um, they literally are like, you know, mm. sugar for, for the ear. And so the thing is, if you listen to a lot of that music, the same as if you eat only, you know, McDonald's or ice cream, your palate changes mm -hmm. so that it actually can't really appreciate the the subtle subtle flavors or you know the subtler frequencies and so it's something in in popular music over time it's got more and more compressed and more and more of these kind of ear sugar frequencies you know are being used in this very narrow bandwidth of sound um so so actually that's ex it, that's exactly what it is you've described it <laughs> That's, I mean, that's, I had no idea about that. And it's, it's really interesting because, yeah, as you said, like sugar, how addictive sugar is because it triggers all these things in our palate. Then, yeah, there is music that's, you know, it's catchy and addictive. Um, and, and it might be, it's like those tunes that you get that get stuck in your head and you don't even like them. Um, but you just can't get rid of it because it's, it's so damn catchy. Um, I guess, yeah, that's that's very much like sugar. I mean, I interestingly, I was not allowed to eat sugar when I was a kid. My mum was um, very much a health freak and um, I wasn't allowed to have sugar or sweets. You know, hardly ever had cakes or anything like that. So I never really developed a sweet tooth and I, I prefer savoury food to this day. And, um, and I guess with music as well, my mum always tried to steer me you know, towards what she considered to be worthy of listening to music. Um, although I still, you know, I liked sort of rubbish pop music, just like all kids do, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, with, with that in mind, and as a side note, I also, me and my brother also weren't allowed any sugar or, you know, we're su super healthy, but then also always wanted the snacks at school that other kids had because we'd have like carrots and you know alfalfa sprouts or whatever so <laughs> um so okay well with, but with that in mind um what was the what was the first track that really imprinted on you um as I said I grew up in a very musical family and there was actually a lot of music I, I was surrounded by music so my mum was um, still making music my father is a musician a guitarist um so he would have been playing you know all the time blues is a blues guitarist and um I my mother joined the Hare Krishna movement when I was a small child so I was surrounded by a lot of Indian classical music as well but a song that really really kind of sticks out for me is uh, Starman by David Bowie and um it was because my mum she used to sort of sing that song to me like a lullaby you know she would always sing it to me and I also had a little stuffed toy that she gave me and it was a it was like a satin kind of a gray satin star and uh, there was like a little boy sitting on top of the star and so she would like wave that around and sing star man to me so I, I, I don't remember hearing the, the original version I just remember 
the version that my mum sang. Um, and then when I did hear the the actual song, I um, you know, I was like, wow, it's you know, even better than what I remembered. Okay, well, with that lovely memory in mind, let's take a listen to Starman by David Bowie. And that was Starman by David Bowie, and that was the track that Celeste chose as the first song that imprinted on her. Um, and you just just described sort of it being sung to you as a lullaby, as you had this little um, stuffed toy, was it like a like a yeah yeah? Um, and do you remember how old you would have been at that point? I mean, it's a very early memory, so I, I my earliest memories are around. Um, two three years old I remember my third birthday quite quite clearly um but I think that might even be slightly earlier so I must have been it must have been about two years old that I remember but I guess my mum was singing that to me since I was a, a baby but yeah the sort of flashes of memories um are probably when I was two three years old but incredible that that is potentially the first memory you have you know as a baby is that song um Mm -hmm. so it must have it obviously went in very deep do you remember how you felt you know when when she'd sing that to you I I remember really enjoying the melody and um and the words um because I guess because I had this toy and she made this um connection very clear you know, so she would wave the the stuffed toy with the star and sing, you know, Star Man. It was, um, I think the connection was really clear to me. Um, whereas I think when when you're a child, you often don't really pay attention to lyrics. But I think the lyrics actually, yeah, they really resonated with me. I think when I was when I was small, um, and my mum was always trying to encourage that kind of um, sense of wonder and magic in me. You know, so there was. I grew up with um, you know, reading her reading fairy fairy tales and Russian fairy tales. I remember that she she really liked to read, and um, and of course brothers Grimm, brother Grimm, brothers Grimm, um, fairy tales, and um, yeah, I just associate it with that kind of magical time mm. when I was you know so small and magic was real and you know people lived in the stars and things like that the moon was made of cheese you know (laughs) (laughs) and so you were you were born in London um you talked a little bit about just always being in this very musical sort of household um but what was what was that early life like for you you were living on was it Baker Street for a while yeah we lived in all over central London really um we moved a lot so I was when I was a baby we lived in a warehouse apartment in Bermondsey and um I was actually speaking to my my mother's um ex-manager's widow the other day and she was telling me how when she went to visit my mum and me when we lived there she was um 
she was really excited because you know she'd never been in into like a warehouse before like that people lived in it seemed really cool and unusual and then we moved to Holland Park for a while because that's where my dad <clears throat> grew up but yeah we lived in Soho we lived all over the place and then around was it age four that was at the time you moved to the Harry Krishna commune in Hertfordshire yeah that's right so about four um we moved there I mean I, I was already kind of immersed in that world because um before moving to the Hare Krishna commune in the countryside we used to visit almost every day the temple in Soho um so that's why we you know we lived in Baker Street we lived in Soho so we always lived sort of um quite near to the temple um with the exception of Bermondsey yeah so we used to go all the time so then we moved properly like into the community when I was um, about four. But actually, remembering now that when I was even younger, I must have been a baby. Um, my mother lived in another commune, which was sort of the pre-manor commune, which was in uh, Shropshire, I think. And that was called Chaitanya Manor. And it was another sort of smaller stately home that I guess had been loaned to the Hare Krishnas. And then when George Harrison bought the manor in Hertfordshire for that well he bought the house and he kind of gave it to to the devotees and um, that became the I guess the the biggest sort of um temple and community in the UK and what was that like because obviously you you know you're talking about that being a sort of presence in your life before then but going off and living in this environment that I imagine is pretty idyllic you know and uh -huh. sort of growing up there like how were those how was that period of your your childhood for you yeah it was was pretty idyllic the natural environment there was incredible so we it is a kind of mock tudor mansion surrounded by um farmlands and also like a lot of gardens as well and different you know kind of sculptured gardens and then you had sort of woodland and and then it was just fields, like cornfields, and um, and there was a, a farm with cows and horses and goats. So it was um, just that in itself was was amazing. I think children who are able to spend a lot of time in the countryside, you're always going to be well, especially if you have other children to play with, it's always going to be magical. So it was me and you know a hundred other kids. Uh, we had a school on site. Um, so I, my earliest memories really are of, of, of the manor, just sort of running running wild in nature and, um, you know, just playing amongst ourselves. And, you know, I don't have too many memories of adults at that time. It was kind of um, just kids, you know, getting up to, to um, trouble sometimes and but all kind of innocent fun. And were you aware at that point of your mom's mental health issues, you know, the, the struggles she was having? Yeah, no, I wasn't really aware until I was about six or seven. And um, it sort of, then it kind of hit me um, that she, there was something wrong. And um, I, I guess I just became more aware of other people's reactions to her. Um, and then I was able to read her mental state myself. And um, 
it was a big shock really for me um, and really unsettling um, and it kind of um, definitely cast a dark shadow over that sort of what had been up until that point idyllic or utopian existence. And was that ultimately why you decided to to leave and go and live with your grandmother? Was it in Brixton? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, my mother's um, mental health just deteriorated very quickly. Sort of, um, it would would have been the mid to late eighties. It was a very difficult time for her, and then. Um, and we kind of became more and more ostracised from the community, the manor community, and just spending more and more time um, alone in, in a house that we were living in nearby. Um, and it wasn't really healthy for my mum. My mum had, you know, grown up in London, in the city, and we were now sort of in a suburb. And, um, and you know, she didn't have her support network or her family. So it was was a really difficult time and so she wasn't really able to look after herself she wasn't able to look after me and um so i i just left um i left uh, with social services actually and then they you know got in touch with my grandmother and and she she became my sort of legal guardian eventually how was the transition back into london having been in this kind of other world in some ways was that was that kind of easy or was it actually harder to come back to London than it was to leave? It was really hard. Um, it was basically a kind of culture shock um, that I experienced, um, going from one very particular sort of type of community, very unique, very special, very different, very odd for most people who were not involved, um, to going into sort of mainstream, so-called mainstream society, mainstream school, but also in a very peculiar, very particular kind of place and time, you know, in a, a part of London that was sort of transitioning in many ways, like just this was before the gentrification of the area that would come later, um, a few years later. And it was it was an area at the time that was um, very um, socially vibrant in many ways, Brixton. So it was like the epicentre of lots of cool stuff that was happening. But also it was um, uh, very deprived. And um, so this school that I went to was, it was, you know, nice Church of England school, but a lot of the kids had... Um, you know, they came from really difficult backgrounds and, and families. And so there was a lot of aggression. There was a lot of violence. You know, that, that was my first immediate impression was that there was a lot of violence and aggression that I hadn't been exposed to at all um, in the Hare Krishna community. So we were told when we were kids there that, you know, the outside world was pretty bad and then, you get thrown into it, and it's it's worse than you <laughs> than you expected. And then you kind of, um, you know, then I kind of realised, well, okay, you know, you get used to it. And I understood that maybe that world that I come from was just a bit like too uh, shut off and too closed, and and you know that's why I hadn't really been prepared for the world outside, but. I think I was so young. I was only eight when I moved to Brixton. 
um, and left the the temple that um, I was able to adjust very, very quickly. And soon I wasn't, you know, I had very little interest in 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 Hare Krishna and, and in the movement and, and in the place as well. You know, I kind of quickly adjusted to my to my new surroundings. Well, it's like, you know, you are talking about the polar opposites, really. And it must have that first day at school. I think I read somewhere that one of the first things that happened was a kid came up and tried to start a fight with you. Is that correct? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, Yeah. And that was, you know, that was my first sort of introduction. Luckily, I, I, so in my year was my cousin, my first cousin, Lisa, um, she was in the same year in the same class as me. So um, I, you know, I went into school with her the first day and I remember she was sort of, she was telling me, oh, like, you know, this, you need to watch out for this one or, you know, don't get on the wrong side of that one. I never had to think about these things in my, in my previous school. And um, in the Hare Krishna temple, actually, in the, in the farm, on the farm, we used to play fights all the time, but it was, again, it was all sort of quite innocent and good natured. So I'd never really heard a, a swear word, but I was quite scrappy at the same time. So I, I think I must have said something like to a kid that was showing off um and because uh, I was, you know, I was quite outspoken. I, I I wasn't afraid, you know, I had no fear. So um, I think I told her she was a brat because that was the worst word that I knew. <laughs> and uh, she she obviously didn't even know what a brat was and thought I'd called her a bitch. And uh, and then it all kicked off. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, you know, we were surrounded by kids, you know, they're like, fight, fight, fight. And um, and no, I didn't. I didn't fight. I, I think I never fought, actually, after leaving the Hare Krishna temple. So in the temple, we used to fight all the time. And, um, you know, proper, like, organized fighting, let's say. And um, But then, yeah, after I left, I never actually got into it. A physical fight ever again and and that doesn't mean that I didn't have lots of verbal altercations but it was just I was very good at avoiding uh, getting into you know fights with people who I was quite aware that could probably beat me up. <laughs> well that I mean that early experience probably had a lot to do with that because it was sort of a safe way of kind of going through that and then actually you realize when it comes to those real situations that you can just kind of you know, it's just best to kind of keep out of it, really. Definitely, because I, I think the sad thing about, you know, the real world is, you know, for me, there was the kind of really striking difference was the the fact that the real world was quite a violent place and dangerous. Um, and that gave me fear that I didn't have, you know, previous. I was quite a fearless child. And um, and suddenly, sort of fear entered into my life, and an awareness of how dangerous everything was. And I don't think that's ever really left me. I would say I'm I'm pretty streetwise, but at the same time, I could be quite nervous. You know, maybe overly paranoid. Or, you know, looking over my shoulder, that kind of thing. And I've always one of the reasons I love Spain. So as soon as I, I came to Spain for the first time, I went to Madrid. Um, actually, it wasn't the first time. My grandparents have a house um, in the south of Spain. But uh, the first time I came just, by, you know, with a friend on holiday, 
we were in Madrid, it was August and the city's really empty. And we were, you know, it was boiling hot, which I love as well. I just love the heat. And um, I just remember it being like late at night, you know, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., walking home and just feeling so safe, you know, like such a different vibe than London. And it was one of the reasons why I decided to to move to Spain, really, because it is actually one of the safest countries in, in Europe, if not in the world, um, in terms of uh, rates of violent crime. Uh, there's plenty of other crime, but not, not too much violent crime. Whereas in the UK, there's very, very high rates of violent crime. And I think that was the most difficult transition, really. So with that, all in mind um it's a perfect time to ask what is the first album that really shaped who you are and had a big impact yeah so uh the first album one of the first albums i bought myself because before that most of the music i had i just you know borrowed from you know family members from my mom um or my mum, she bought me a lot of records. Um, but the first one I bought myself was Rage Against Machine um, by Rage Against Machine. And um, it was recommended to me by a friend at school. And she'd actually moved to, to London, to Brixton, from the US. From uh, She was from Maryland, Maryland. Um, and she, she'd spent some time in D.C., and uh, she just had a great, you know, wealth of music knowledge and really great taste in music. Um, she also, she was just so much more savvy and cool than than the rest of us, it seemed. Um, I went to a girls' school and, uh, you know, the first day that she sort of came to school, she looked so much older than the rest of us because she was wearing makeup and uh, no one in my school wore, wore makeup. And there were lots of like bitchy, mean comments about that, I remember. But I thought, yeah, she's really cool. And she seems to ha- have her head screwed on. And we just became friends. And she um, she definitely influenced me. I was influenced by her. And yeah, she, she used to listen to the album a lot. And there was one track in particular, um, which was uh, Killing in the Name of. And she used to listen to that all the time. And so I just started listening to the I bought the album and then I just you know I listened to it every day it felt like for about a year and um it was quite funny because my mom so I was living with my I was back living with my mom at this point um in East Dulwich and she kind of hated the album because I used to play it all the time and then I would put you know killing in the name of and then it'd be like fuck you I won't do what you tell me (laughs) and uh she was just like, ah, oh, this is just, this is making you more uh, defiant and, um, you know, it's making you dislike me. Um, so, yeah, she, which was, you know, very ironic seeing as she was this punk uh, rebel. That's how a lot of people saw her. But she felt like um, Rage Against Machine was, was a bad influence on me. Uh, so, of course, I liked it even, even more and played it all the more. So it's the perfect teenage soundtrack, really. Perfect. So with that um, in mind, let's take a listen to Killing in the Name of by Rage Against the Machine from the self-titled album. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Motherfucker! Oh. 
And that was Killing in the Name of by Rage Against the Machine from their self-titled album. And that was the first record um, that Celeste chose. Uh, well, the first record that really shaped who you are and had a had a big impact. Um, and I, I kind of love all of the stuff you've shared. It just paints such a wonderful... I don't know, just the context of that from obviously what you were saying about London and realizing how dangerous the world was. And then that was ultimately kind of what prompted you to move over to Spain. And then, you know, this track, which is so, yeah, it is so, I don't know, it is so defiant and, you know, Mm -hmm. makes you feel so fearless and kind of, and it is very aggressive. And then your mom's response to that, um, feeling like that was sort of a step too far um but also you know appreciating that as you said like once you left um Hertfordshire you never once got into a fight so maybe it's you know one of those things that's like a safe way of expressing your anger and and frustration Mm -hmm. and um I I love that (laughs) I love that track as well and actually it's funny because as a really very short story I've I never done any karaoke in my life but um, I did it one time with this friend who's actually a music journalist editor um, who was a previous episode of, of this show. And he, funnily enough, was the person who told me about my mom's punk stuff because she'd never told us. We grew up just knowing her as this therapist and this kind of, you know, assertiveness trainer. And, and, and so she'd never shared this other, you know, part of her life. And it was actually through this journalist who'd bought her book and various things and was chatting with me and kind of shared it when I was in my 20s anyway um the only time I've ever done karaoke was with him and I did that song and it um (laughs) it just got a really it got a really bizarre reaction which I won't go into now but um (laughs) so that song is has a very special place in my heart as well um so you were saying that this was influenced by the American friend of yours who'd moved Uh to this all girls school um and how old were you around that time because you were living back with your mom again um Mm -hmm. what kind of age were you at this point I would have been 16 probably just turned 16 and going into sixth form yeah sixth form college so um I so my birthday is in August at the end of August so I was always the youngest in, in the year um so yeah, I would have just turned sixteen, and um, I would have been starting my A levels because uh, that's when I started to hang out really with um, this friend Miriam. And I think yeah, sixth form was a big change for me actually um, in terms of you know I started to really get into things like music. Um, before I I wasn't I was much more of a nerd, you know I was just into reading you know as a prolific reader so like my hobby was to go to the library and get like classic kind of 19th century novels and just read them so I'd I'd read like War and Peace and all of like Thomas Hardy and the Bronte sisters and I was just like mad about literature um and I was really into Lord of the Rings so when I was about 14, I was just like obsessed with Lord of the Rings. Um, so I wasn't cool at all. And then, um, but yeah, when I went to sixth form, I started to hang out with more cooler people, cooler crowd, started to get into um, into some music and yeah, get more into clothes and all of that kind of 
stuff but yeah it was it was a really fun time my sixth form was in in the same secondary school so I didn't I didn't go anywhere else um but what was funny is that it was um my secondary school was a girls school Church of England again girls school um quite a religious school actually so I used to I was in the choir as well and used to go to church quite a lot um so Christianity has been I was quite a big influence on me as well as Hinduism and yes we went to this girls school and then for sixth form we joined up with a boys school another church being the boys school um, and we had some boys coming to the school which was wild you know because um, everyone was really boy crazy uh, because we hadn't had any boys around us Um, but because our school was a girls school and uh, the sixth form was mo- most of the classes were in our school, the, the girls' school. Um, there were very few boys who actually wanted to attend sixth form because they were like, oh, I'm not going to a girls' school. Um, so the few brave lads that, that signed up, um, well, they, you know, they made really the right decision because they were surrounded by girls <laughs> who were all like... <laughs> absolutely wild about boys and um yeah there were two very good looking guys who just you know had their pick um (laughs) so it was it was quite funny funny times and you mentioned briefly um you'd started writing songs at that point yourself Mm -hmm. and what kind of led you to do that and was it guitar piano like what how how did that um kind of come about um, so I started, I think when I was about 15, you know, I, I went through the, the usual kind of weird patch that teenagers go through and I became very introspective and, and that's when I started writing. I started off with like diary actually, started trying to keep a diary and I wasn't, you know, didn't have the patience for that. Um, and then it, that kind of turned into sort of more poetry and then I just started sort of writing songs. I think, you know, I was definitely influenced by my mum because she was always writing songs. So the song format just seemed to come naturally to me. Um, I didn't play an instrument at all. I'd actually dropped out of music at school because I had a really weird thing with um, both my art class and my music class. I um, I just couldn't get on with the teachers. I've always struggled with artists actually you know because both my parents are artists I felt like there was something there like some block I felt with like artistic people just seem to get on my nerves (laughs) in general um I've kind of got over that now but for a long time I just thought it was a lot of it was you know pretentious basically and bullshit that's kind of and that, that was my headspace when I was like 15 um so I dropped out of music and I couldn't really played a bit of piano but not good enough for writing so I just wrote the songs and sort of made up the melodies in my head and that was it really and I didn't like think about doing anything with them it was much more just writing for the sake of writing but the song format just worked for me and I was always musical that I'd been in the choir uh, this whole time yeah melody again it just came to me naturally and I think because my mum had told me how she'd written songs you know she didn't play a musical instrument either so she would sing the words and sing the sort of 
the top line and she would be able to come up with the bass line as well. So that's kind of how I approach songwriting as well. But yeah, I didn't do anything with my songs until much, much later, until I was like my late, well, mid twenties when I had my, um, my first band, but I was already sort of in, in Spain at that point. Well, yeah. And as you said, there's, um, there is no right way to do any of that, you know, and I think a lot of the time it is just such a good kind of form of therapy, really just keeping a journal and, and then writing whether it's poems or ideas or mm-hmm. stories. A song is just another story, and you know, with, yeah. a, with a melody, basically. So did you ever share any of that with your mom when you were that age? And also, like, how was your relationship at that point when you were 15, 16? Had, had it got sort of easier oh I wouldn't say it was easier I think it was the worst actually (laughs) it was basically the worst period for us um in terms of our relationship mainly because you know I was 15 full of hormones I was quite a cynical critical kind of mm, smart ass know-it-all and my mum was you know going into her 40s also hormones you know, galore, and uh, that combined with the bipolar disorder, you know, it was just a not a great combination, um, and we we just clashed a lot. I think it's it's often the way, like when you're when you have a small child, you see your parents as kind of like gods almost, and by the time you you're a teenager, it's you know. You start to see all their flaws, or what well, I did, you know, and um, I just wasn't very respectful. And then it's hard; it was hard for my mum and many parents to then see their child not responding to them in in the way that they always had, and and see their child kind of second guessing and answering back and thinking that they know better. It's it must be really annoying. And challenging, so yeah, it was a, a difficult time in our relationship. So I, I don't think I shared with her any any songs, um, mainly because you know she constantly changed her mind about whether she wanted me to be involved in music or not. So sometimes she would tell me you should explore more your like musical side or you should be more creative, and then other times she'd be like, "Oh, you know, never get involved in the music industry. It's like the worst thing. Make sure you finish your education and." you know, get a proper job. So there were lots of like mixed messages. So I was, you know, I kind of kept that side of my creativity quite private. Um, And yeah, it wasn't until later, like I was in my 20s, I, I started to kind of talk to her about music and maybe me wanting to, to do it and, you know, starting to ask for her advice and things. It took me a long time to get to that place really with her. And was that was that around the time that you guys did the show at the Roundhouse together? So it would have been before that. When I was about 22, I'd just come back from Australia and um, I was living with my mum and she'd moved to Hastings. Yeah, we spent about six months together in, in her Hastings house and I was a bit unsure of what I wanted to do with my life basically I sort of graduated from uni I had a degree but I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I did think about doing um doing music at that stage so she actually helped me to 
to do a demo and and things like that. So I I did sort of I kind of dipped a toe into it, but then I um I had a really weird experience. Like I met it was Amy Winehouse's one of her managers. And he basically told me that I was really too old, right, to um, to be starting out. And I was only 22, right? And, uh, and he was basically telling me how he got Amy, you know, when she was 16 and, and all of this stuff. And I was just like, immediately, I was just like, I do not have time or patience for this. You know, I kind of, I got a taste of... of what it would be, you know, mm. to to be in, in the industry, just as my mum had told me, you know, she'd always warned me about about that and about basically all the dicks you have to deal with um, constantly as soon as you get in, into that world. So that just put me off and um, I decided instead of, you know, doing anything like that, I was going to, I was going to travel and, um, and so I went off and I taught English in, in Spain. So I was going to go to Brazil and I, I just went to Madrid and I was teaching and I was traveling and I was just, you know, having a good time. And then I was, it was about two or three years later that I decided to do music again. But this time, instead of thinking about solo career, I just got a band together um, as more of a fun kind of activity that I could do with some friends. These were already friends of mine. Um, teachers as well, um, rather than like, oh, this is going to be my career, you know. So it was much more of a, just like a fun hobby, um, and it was really enjoyable. You know, we had a great time. We, you know, it's something we did in our our spare time really, but we got quite far with it. You know, played lots of gigs, did a little tour, but I never saw it as um as a career and I think that was the only way I could really do music as as a fun activity a creative outlet but not trying to make it my um not try and make a living out of it because it's well it's really hard to make a living out of music first of all and uh and what you have to kind of sacrifice I wasn't prepared to do it and that was was that debutant disco yeah nice and there's a track on there which is um I can't remember the title but it is all about that age BS, right? Yeah, that's young blood. Yeah, and I don't think I was even consciously writing about that earlier experience, but I was, um, you know, I've always been quite interested in tabloid culture, like fascinated and gossip, you know, gossip magazines and things like that. And I think I, I was inspired by what was happening with Britney Spears, you know, at the time mm. when she was having, she was going through that first, like, public meltdown and I just remember like the the way people were responding to her like in the media it was like she was kind of you know past it washed up that that was the insinuation you know she wasn't she wasn't hot anymore and that made me really kind of angry the way that you know these very young people have this very short lifespan Mm. And, well, first of all, it's, it's ridiculous, but um, it does seem to affect women, of course, more than men. So I was inspired by that and also by the meat industry, you know, so it's kind of, I was trying to talk about both things, really, about the meat market of, 
you know, the entertainment industry, but also the the actual, you know, meat markets and how we kill very, very young animals for their meat because mm. their meat is only worth anything when they're, when they're young. Do you think having had that experience yourself and then also, you know, seeing that more in the media, um, it almost gave you maybe greater awareness or appreciation of everything your mom had gone through and you, were you guys ever able to have a conversation about you know everything that she must have endured across the spectrum of you know racial sexual um what else is there um mental you know it's i mean mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. it's like it's hard enough just being a woman in the industry um mm -hmm. and, and and as you said still you know it's that's still the case and maybe even maybe even more so i don't know but i mean did that give you Obviously, you go through the teenage years of just kind of feeling like, you know, your parents don't get it mm -hmm. and, you know, and you want to detach mm -hmm. and not identify with them. But um, did you sort of come at her life with a, a different perspective later on, do you think? Yeah, definitely. You know, and the older I got, the more I was able to understand why she was the way that she was. Like, you know, I was able to kind of contextualize the little bits of information that I had and sort of builds a much clearer picture of who she'd been. And there wasn't really a moment where we just sat down, you know, and had a massive chat and spoke about everything. It was much more like, you know, like lots of little bits of little conversations that we had over the years. And, um, and then lots of conversations I had with other family members, like my grandmother, who was much more, talkative um in that sense and my mum was about my mum was a, a great talker but she was um she didn't talk about that period of her life all that much you know she was um she was quite keen to move on from it so I got bits bits of information here and there from her but a lot of it I got from my grandmother who was you know there behind the scenes and she had a really different perspective on on that whole experience, you know, the experience of being famous for that short time that my mum was. And um, my nan could see how it was affecting my mum in a way that my mum probably wasn't aware of herself. But yeah, the, you know, my mother had always been very worried, worried about the possibility that I would, um, you know, make the same mistakes. That's how she saw it, make the same mistakes as she had. She felt like she'd been exploited in many ways, financially, emotionally, and she didn't want that for me. You know, so she, she always encouraged me to learn, to be academic, so I could have this other outlet, this other route, you know, uh, something to fall back on. That's what she always said. You have to have something to fall back on because she didn't. She left school at 15 and uh, without any qualifications. And so even though it's, amazing like so remarkable what she did without qualifications without any formal training not having qualifications meant that after the the music ended you know the music career which was you know very short very short-lived um she had she had nothing to fall back on um she had no way of making a living um so she was dependent on royalty you know living off royalties which come in drips and drabs, you know, over the years, definitely not uh, enough really to to survive. So that was really hard for her. And it's really hard for a lot of artists, um, but it's not something that I feel like 
gets talked about that much because there's this expectation that if you've been like on TV or, you know, you've been famous enough to be in like the newspaper or the tabloids, whatever, that you're just, the money's just always there, but it isn't, it runs out. So that side of it, I was always really aware of, you know, I was always really wary of going down that road because I knew it wasn't one that led to much prosperity. <laughs> Not that I've, you know, <laughs> been, you know, like rolling in it as a teacher, but it's it's something stable. Well, and also like not one that leads to much prosperity, but also like sanity. You know, it's like even yeah. if even if you're super grounded and kind of together and realize that all the external factors ultimately don't really matter, you see the impact of being demoralized one minute and then glamorized the next, hero to zero. I mean, it is like, it's crazy making mm -hmm. literally absolutely i mean if you don't go mad you know if you don't um have mental health issues as a result of that experience i think you're very lucky basically so on on that note what music would you send into space celeste so yeah i thought a bit a little bit about this and um you know there's so much my first thought would be you know some great piece of classical music and you know there's so many composers I like, but I really think one of the most beautiful songs for me, like if I had to pick what do I think is one of the most beautiful songs, it would be Edo Lezi by, uh, this is, it's actually a really old song, um, but the most recent or the most well-known composition is by Goran Bregovic. And it's, it's just a very beautiful song. I don't uh, speak the language that it's sung in, but um I have actually looked up the lyrics and um, there are different like stories about the origin of the song, but one of them I think is just really haunting and it's um, basically, so it's a, a gypsy song and the Roma gypsies, when they're being persecuted by um, the Nazis during the Second World War, there was a, a Roma gypsy man and, um, and he was singing that song as they were being taken to, to the concentration camp. But the song, the, the lyrics of the song is it's like sadness, but it's hopeful as well. So for me, it's just, I can't, it kind of, I don't know, it's perfectly the most human of songs, I would say. And that's kind of what you would want to be sent out into space uh, to represent the planet or humanity. I think um, you want to, first of all, you want something that's beautiful melodically, but also... Um, something that maybe tells you a little bit about the plight of of us humans on this planet and i think it, it does in many ways wonderful so now we're going to take a listen to edelezi by goran bregovic
And that was Edelezi by Goran Bregovich. And that was the music that Celeste would send into space as the most human of songs, which I think is such a lovely description. Yeah, that really stands out for me. So um, we've covered so much and we're almost at the end of the show, um, but you're so fascinating and wonderful. And um, so it's always, you know, good to get a little bit more when when people are so fascinating and wonderful. Um, so you've just finished the documentary, um, the polystyrene documentary, uh, which that's been like a five, six year process, has it? Yeah, so um, that started in 2016, end of 2016, um, and it started with the book. Um, it was actually a book project, um, which became Dayglow, the polystyrene story. And then the book, the film, we started on the film sort of in parallel to, to writing the book. So they are kind of in some ways like um, companions pieces, you know, the book and, and the film. There are lots of elements of the book that made it into the film and uh, vice versa, lots that we couldn't put into the film that, that we're able to put into the book. So, yeah, it was just a really long process because, I mean, the book itself, that took a couple of years and then the film just took so much longer because it was such a such a bigger project because um, it involves so much more and obviously it involves a lot more money <laughs> to make it. So it took... Um, quite a long time just to raise all the funds um to to get the film made but we got there in the end and were there any great discoveries that you made in that process going through all the her archive yeah so many discoveries um mainly through interviewing people um you know so I had obviously as I said before you know I'd, I'd heard various things about that period from my mum and also from from my grandmother and, and my mum's sister. But um, there was so much I didn't know. And it was only when I sat down and interviewed sort of people who knew her then, people that I didn't know, that I was able to really fill in the gaps. Um, and, yeah, there were just so many revelations, most of which made it into the film. Which I have to say I have... I am so sad, but I, I wasn't able to see during South By and then I can't find a copy of it anywhere. So Celeste, you've got to tell everyone um, when and where can they see it? Yeah, so the, the thing is, the film was released in the UK only in March. So we, we got funding from Sky. So it was broadcast on Sky uh, in the UK and then we also got last minute distribution deal with Modern Films again only in the UK um, so outside of the UK we um, we haven't finalized our distribution yet but it's it's happening it's in we're in the process of finalizing US distribution for example so we hope um, people will be able to see the film in the US um, like we hope to do a short theatrical run first of all so in cinemas um, independence a few independent cinemas um, and then Probably that would be like a hybrid with streaming um, because uh, the release in the UK was was all virtual and that actually went really well. So it'll probably be a hybrid kind of theatrical and virtual screening and and hopefully we'll get a broadcast, you know, with um, either a streaming sort of channel or a broadcasting network. So yeah, we're we're on it and um, 
people in the US will hopefully be able to see the film soon and in other countries as well. And then in the UK, um, you can you can still see it through modern films um, through through various partners like BFI Player, Curzon, Home Cinema, and others. Um, and I'm sure Sky will be showing it again as well. Um, and what do you think your mum would think of the film? I think she would like it. It's been such a journey since we started, and I think. You know, in 2016, there were ideas um, and there was nothing concrete. And um, and the process of during, the, you know, making the film during this whole process, with each year, it's just become more and more the film I think that my mum would have wanted us to make. Because, first of all, she's so present throughout the film, like in terms of her diary entries and then various bits of writing and interviews that she did. And also just the themes that we we explore, you know, these a lot of these themes are themes that are really close to her heart, including her spirituality, um, which wasn't at the top of the list of of things that I was going to talk about in this film. But um, in the end, it seemed, you know, it was really clear that we couldn't make the film without talking about that. So, um, yeah, I think she would like it. What is the film that you would have play at your memorial? Uh, the film. Sorry, wow. <laughs> what is the track? <laughs> but actually, the film as well. Why not have a whole film, Celeste? <laughs> I mean, that's a good, yeah. I was like, wow, that's just uh, a film screening, like stroke funeral would be. I mean, I, I, I decided actually at my mum's funeral that I was never going to have a funeral um, because it was such a, such a, difficult experience and also just it's a real pain to organize um but um if i do have a funeral if someone would like to do something i think i would like to play um well in terms of the song life's a bitch by nas because i think that would make people chuckle um which is what you want at a funeral and i also really love that track i really love nas and yeah in terms of a film it's a tough one it would have to be something like you know, very whimsical that that I loved when I was a child. So I think it would have to be um, a never-ending story because I think that's the the film I watched again and again when I was when I was little. So yeah, it'd be it would be never-ending story, and that's that's a nice can for the end of life and the beginning of the next journey. Perfect. So we're going to take a listen to Life's a Bitch by Nas and that, yeah, and also simultaneously imagine watching Neverending Story. <laughs> <laughs> Life's a bitch and then you die. That's why we get high. Cause you never know when you're going to go. Life's a bitch and then you die. That's why we puff fly. Cause you never know when you're going to go. Life's a bitch and then you die. That's why we get high. Cause you never know when you're going to go. Life's a bitch and then you die. That's why we puff fly. That was Life's a Bitch by Nas, and that was the track that Celeste chose to have play at her memorial, even though, as she said, she's not sure she's going to have one, which I also stand by. I, I agree with that. Um, so just talking about death, you know, how, how do you feel about death? And is spirituality a big part of your life also? Um, I wouldn't say it's a big part of my life. I'm not, um, I think I'm, I don't have the discipline really to to be properly spiritual 
you know, so I don't have a spiritual practice really. I don't, I don't really meditate or or anything like that. But I, I think I am quite spiritually minded, and um, my sort of worldview is whimsical. Um, a lot of people consider me to be sort of quite sensible and down to earth. I definitely have a very um, dreamy, non-empirical kind of even superstitious side uh, that's kind of inevitable coming from my background. So, yeah, I would just say that when I think of death, you know, to me it's just question marks, you know, so I have no answers, just lots of questions. Um, I think experiencing my mother's death at a young age, um, even though it was really difficult, but it, um, it gave me a lot of strength and made me more prepared for what that experience might be. And the fact that she was so spiritual and that it gave her so much strength at the end of her life, her spirituality, um, definitely opened me up much more to the power of belief and in the belief of a life beyond this one. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely more open to it, but I have no fixed fixed ideas yet. <laughs> and what are you hoping to preserve with Polly's legacy or Marion's legacy? And how would you like the world to see your mum? Obviously, I'm you know immensely proud and impressed with with my mum's work and her art um, because I'm her daughter, but also just objectively, I think the the work that she's left us is really valuable. And her, her story as well, I think, is inspiring for so many. And I just think there, there are very few people like my mum in the world and we have to celebrate them. And, uh, and we have to make sure their legacy endures and that the younger generation can, can find something in, in something inspirational. And I think as a woman as well, what my mother represents as a woman for other women, I think is very important, especially in the women in the creative industries or in the music industry. So, yeah, I think in terms of her legacy, it's just hoping that it endures. You know, when we think about death, a way that we can reach immortality is through other people remembering us and remembering what we did. So, you know, it's just a way of keeping my mother's memory alive. And I hope that after I'm gone, someone else will be able to do that. So Celeste, what is the record that you'd pass on to the next generation? I mean, it's really difficult, a really difficult choice again, just like sending a song into space. That was really difficult. Um, but I think it would have to be, of course, my mum's album that she did with X-Ray Specs, Germ for Adolescence, because I, I really think, you know, it's in terms of the lyrics of that album, I think it's one of the best albums really of popular music and the reason I think it's one of the best is because it's um it has so many layers and it's so profound because it's kind of it really speaks to you and I think it spoke to people in 70 78 and I think it still speaks to people just as much even more so in 2021 and I imagine it will do in another 40 years so um, it's just timeless in that way. And uh, I would choose um, from the, the album, I would choose Germ for Adolescence, the title track, um, mainly because in 2021, where we are now with this global pandemic and all the really strange and, and bizarre things that we're living through, the lyrics are so pertinent and um, so meaningful. So I think if you listen to that 
song in 78, you might be really perplexed about, you know, what she was going on about. Um, and now it just makes total sense. Now we really are germ-free adolescents, all of us. So yeah, it's the perfect song for now. And um, and I think it's just a beautiful song as well, uh, melodically. And um, I would say it's the peak of my mum's output, really artistic output in terms of songwriting perfect well in literally two minutes we're going to end with germ-free adolescence by x-ray specs um but just before we do um celeste the last couple of questions and i think it's safe to say that you know that record but also what you were saying about your mom in general is just a realization that you know the world there are certain people with whom the world has to catch up and i think um, she's definitely one of them and this record as well as probably a lot of her art you know in the bigger picture um, really stands the test of time and is does become that kind of timeless art which is you know the best art of humanity really so with that in mind what is the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the air choices Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to find a, a thread because they're, I guess they're all so different. Um, but I do think there is, if I had to think of just one, I guess it is it is humanity. You know, I said Edelezi, I chose it because it's a human song. But all the songs that I've chosen are, are kind of songs of, of my little life, you know, the songs that kind of have some chronological significance for me but I think they also have some chronological significance for human beings in terms of our historical journey of where we were and where we're going or where we are right now interestingly. And thinking about art and humanity today what do you think we've gained and what do you think we've lost? I think it's easy for me to answer that actually because I was talking about it with my boyfriend the other day and um, I feel personally and this this might actually be like a lot of people won't agree with me and in some ways I think it's a conservative idea but um, I feel that we've lost beauty with the course of, of time. I think there is less and less beauty in the world in many ways. I mean again this is coming from my sort of background of you know my own peculiar history of growing up in this intentional community where we kind of rejected modernity in many ways um and and modern modernization and industrialization but yeah I, I do feel that we're losing beauty the more modernized the more industrialized the world's becoming more sterile and um the chaos and the beauty of nature is being lost and i, I do feel that that is reflected in art as well the further remove we are from nature the further we remove beauty from our lives and yeah that's something I do feel strongly about but what we've gained I don't know um we've gained um with the technological I guess the the flip side of that with te technological progress then we have this very new unique insight into like the nature of reality the universe you know we can kind of we know where we we've, we've come from in some ways and and I guess that, that sort of scientific progress maybe has influenced art in a good way. But yeah, I think it's mainly bad. Like, I think art has, has suffered through um, the modernization process. So you said a lot of people will probably disagree. Yeah. I literally could not agree with you more. And I've said, I said the same thing myself. <laughs> and 
I just want to <laughs> applaud what you said um, because I think it it needs to be said and it's real and you know nature and our our core to our humanity and our disconnection with the natural world also reflects our sort of disconnection with ourselves and our ability to make art that transcends our humanness and points to the divine Mm -hmm. which nature is you know nature is imagination itself you know so I just want to say I really agree with you, Celeste. And um, <laughs> it's always it's always nice to meet a like mind. Um, and very last question: What is it that you hope to leave behind with the work that you've done and the work that you're continuing to do? Um, I don't know. I, I hope to. It's hard to like pinpoint one thing. Most of the work I'm doing at the moment is is about making sure that my mother's legacy endures. And I hope if I have anything that I leave behind, it's in some ways trying to to be helpful, you know, because um, that's ultimately, you know, what I would like if I think, what did I do on this planet? You know, did I just fart around and having a good time and not doing anything important? Um, or did I um, leave an impact, um, a positive impact? and did I impact some people in some way and so I hope I do I don't know how that is yet but that's all all we can hope for really absolutely and on those wonderful wise words we're going to end with a perfect COVID song um, a song that actually feels like it was written exactly (laughs) for now um, which which is germ-free adolescence by x-ray specs and celeste awesome mum so celeste thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you beauty